If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're a teenager, you always feel like you're the only one. You're left out. You weren't invited. You found out late. That's just a natural default teenager setting. And no matter what, part of us always has that mode. You hear people saying over and over, like, oh my God, I feel like I'm in junior high, but I feel like I'm a teenager, but this is making me feel like I did in high school. And what is the this? The this is something that's happening online because there's a lot of stuff that happens online that really <laughs> brings out like the sort of very worst side of adolescence in all of us. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that explores the mind, soul, science and health as we speak with world-leading experts each week. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur and happiness researcher. Life is not straightforward, so join me as we navigate being human together and become what I like to call flexible thinkers. I believe that curiosity and education is the route for more happiness, love, connectedness, and the doorway to unlocking your unlimited potential. I hope you join me on the journey. Before we continue, I want to tell you about my secret to smelling good and keeping it natural. Yes, my sponsor for this week is Wild, the UK's number one natural deodorant company that's kind to you and our planet. You know how sometimes natural deodorants just don't quite do the job? Well, I can assure you, Wild does, and I'm currently smelling like a delicious coconut. I can safely say this deodorant will keep you super fresh even when you're running, dancing, or getting your body moving, as it's 24-hour certified. Wild deodorant has a fully sustainable design. It's vegan, cruelty-free, low-cost, and stylish too. There are so many delicious scents to choose from, and all made with natural ingredients. You can buy a one-off or sign up to a flexible subscription. Wild are currently offering Not Perfect listeners an exclusive 20% off your first deodorant. So head to their website at wearewild.com and use the code NOTPERFECT, that's all one word, at checkout to take advantage of this amazing discount. On today's podcast, we have the fabulous Pamela Paul, who is an award-winning author of eight books and is also the editor of the New York Times Book Review and oversees all books coverage at the New York Times. She's also the host of the weekly book review podcast for the Times. Her spectacular writing career has seen the publication of Rectangular Time, How to Raise a Reader, My Life with Bob, Plot Ensues, The Start of Marriage and the Future of Matrimony, Pornified Parenting, and by the book, Writers on Literature and the Literary Life. In today's podcast, we are going to be speaking about her latest book that I have devoured, A Hundred Things We've Lost to the Internet. It made me laugh, it made me think, and it made me reflect on what's happened to our behavior, how things have changed without us really realizing, and what that change has left behind. What's a quote you return to often and why? Well, I will tell you, actually, 
a poem um, that's a kind of a quote. It's a poem by Shel Silverstein, um, who was a songwriter and a poet who wrote The Missing Piece and The Big O and Where the Sidewalk Ends and a number of other collections. And here's the poem. It's called Peckin. The saddest thing I ever did see was a woodpecker peckin' at a plastic tree. He looks at me and friend, says he, things ain't as sweet as they used to be. I think about that a lot. Um, it's not that I am 100% nostalgic as a human being, but I'm probably like 93% nostalgic. I like to think backwards as in addition to thinking forwards. And it has a great illustration too. So um, if you haven't seen it, look it up. I think about it all the time. And it's obviously pertinent to this book. What's the life lesson you've been reminded of and why? Well, actually, I'm going to go into something that kind of um, falls out of the last quote. But when I was in college, um, when university and graduating and trying to figure out what to do with my life, um, I had this sort of break slash epiphany my senior year as I was interviewing for jobs. And I decided that rather than take the job that I thought I would take that would have been in publishing or advertising, which is what my mother had done, I decided to do something completely different, which was to buy a one-way ticket to a country that I didn't know, uh, had never been to, didn't know anyone who lived there that was a different religion, a different ethnicity, different language, sort of everything that I was accustomed to, I wanted it to be something I'd never encountered before. And the way that I thought about it at the time was, I want to go somewhere where I can't wake up every day and read the New York Times and have my cup of coffee. And I ended up buying a one-way ticket to Northern Thailand. And um, the one thing that sort of troubled me the entire time that I was there was this notion that while I was off in Thailand having this really interesting life, all of my friends from college and all of my friends from home were busy going about their lives, moving forward along the steps of life. So they were getting the apartment and they were getting the puppy and they were having the boyfriend and they were having the first job and they were getting ahead. And that when I came back, which was a year later, I would be a year behind. So I sort of thought of life as a kind of board game, you know, and that they had moved like at least 18 squares ahead of me, and that it would take me a while to catch up. And I sort of went into this knowing, well, when I get back, I'll just have a lot of catch up to do. And maybe I'll never catch up. Maybe they'll always be one step ahead on the board game of life than I am. And that's just the price I have to pay. And of course, that was the most ridiculous kind of thinking ever, because life isn't like that. And um, I wasn't behind in any way. And, you know, in certain ways I was ahead. And, and, and frankly, just thinking about that comparison was so ludicrous. And that's a lesson that I have never forgotten that I'm constantly reminding myself of that you can make a change in your life and it doesn't put you behind in any way. It's not going to hold you back that if anything, sort of stepping off the track or, you know, doing something totally different or pausing for a moment, almost always in some way, shape or form puts you ahead of where you were before. What a lovely lesson to be reminded of. How do you understand your definition of soul? Soul is not a word that I generally love. Um, I'm not a religious person, but the way that I think about it is through story. And when my father was alive, he used to repeat over and over and over the same funny stories 
about his parents, about him, his childhood, about his sister, about us when we were kids. I mean, over and over repeating them so that we would memorize these stories. And now I find that I tell the same stories because when my father died, which was 10 years ago now, I remembered those stories so well. And I remember when he was dying, the day he he died, in fact, of course, you don't know that that's going to be the day, but I knew it was getting close to the end. I went to talk to him. I really wanted to talk to him. Um, he didn't want to see anyone at that point, but I really wanted to talk to him mostly because I had a message I wanted to tell him. And the message was, I promise to tell my children stories about you and I will tell them over and over and over again, because while they may be too young now to remember you when they're older, they will always remember those stories. And so you will always be alive in their hearts. And so that's kind of the way that I think about soul. What a lovely way to understand soul and also what a lovely reminder for us to tell stories and remember the ones that are told to us. On the subject of stories, you are such a brilliant storyteller across your body of work that I particularly enjoyed the hundred things that you describe we've lost to the internet. To begin with, I guess, how did the idea to write this book evolve? First of all, I don't think that all aspects of it are terrible. You and I could not be doing this podcast right now without the internet. So there is a lot of good to it. So I wanted to have a little bit of that nuance and complexity. But I also wanted to strip out some of the anger and the outrage, which is totally justifiable. Like, you know, there are big things that the internet has taken away from us, things like democracy and privacy and fair elections. So all of those things are significant and very upsetting. And I wanted to kind of take a step back, pause, think about the kind of trickle down little things that the internet has taken away from us, not focusing on the sadness and the anger of that, but really thinking about what was that like before? You know, what was it like? What did it feel like? Wait, what did we do when we were trying to get somewhere? And like, how did we tell people that we were running late? Like, how did that work? What did we do before you could just, you know, text someone? How did we even communicate without emojis? Like there are emojis that express what I am feeling better than my own voice. And so it was just sort of trying to figure out like, what was the old timey way? And, you know, I think I'm a bit older than you. And I, um, I lived through a fair portion of my life and a good part of my adult life without the internet. But it's even hard for me to remember, like, how do we used to do this? And I think it's because the internet so quickly habituates us to new ways of doing things. I mean, it's really a very addictive and effective tool. So that's what I wanted to capture in the book was the before times, the before times and all the little things, um, whether they're physical objects, things like staple removers and filing cabinets and manila envelopes, or whether they're more amorphous things like blind dates and eye contact and empathy. I wanted to sort of see if I could capture that in a book. One of the, and it's very early on, I think it's point two, when you talk about how we've lost bad photographs. And it just really made me laugh thinking about how many terrible disposable camera photographs that we, that was the only thing that captured our childhood was like eyes closed, 
like one of the children not looking at the camera another one has ice cream in their hair there was never a good photograph and suddenly the internet brought just an array of like better photographs totally and if you took a group photo like someone always <laughs> had you know red eyes or you know like hair in their face and um what's funny now is that I think there's a lot of nostalgia among the sort of digital native population. And in certain ways, they almost try to emulate bad photos. Like you can see there's an aesthetic on TikTok and Instagram mm. of kind of trying to like, in some way, recapture that. And there are even apps that where you take photos and they don't allow you to filter them or touch them up. And then you don't actually get to see them until the next day. Because remember, and you might not remember, but in the before times, before there were even um, like, what were the, um, in London, there, there's a chain, it was called Snaps, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Snappy Snaps. Yeah. And you know, you, you would get your photos in like 24 hours, which is super fast, or even like, I think there was like one hour photo, you know, you could get one hour photo. So that revolutionized things. But before that, even, you know, you would have to wait sometimes a week and you would bring your photos in and they would just come back and you'd, you'd look through it and like, you would barely remember, you know, some of the pictures. One of the things I find so interesting too, is now everyone has realized like you never, if somebody to ask you to take your, you know, your photo, like you're just, you're posing at a touristic site or whatever, or an Instagram museum. Um, and you ask them to take your picture. They would never just take one photo. They know that that's like, that would be insane. And so rude to just hand it back to you with one photo. And what's crazy to me, it's like you hand your fo- your camera or your phone rather to a stranger and you get it back, like, you know, 30 seconds later, and it's got like 60 photos on it, you know, like they, they didn't just take one and they didn't even take 10. They took like 30. And it's, it's like, that's normal. You're like, oh, good. Thanks. You knew what to do. Yeah, it's really, really funny. I often connect the rising of mental health with the introduction of the internet. And although obviously correlation and causation, you know, we can't often link them all the time, but I think it's quite obvious that the internet has had an enormous effect on how people feel and their mental health in general. Out of the 100 plus things you write about in this book, what do you think has been most problematic to our mental health? I think the loss of empathy. And, you know, that sounds like a very grand claim to say that we've lost empathy. Of course, it's not entirely gone. It's not like we're no longer empathetic human beings. But I think, and look, I'm not condemning anyone else that I don't condemn in myself. It's really easy to be unsympathetic, unempathetic with others on the internet because you're disembodied. You don't see the person. Maybe you see a photo of them. Maybe it's just an avatar. Maybe they have a fake name. Maybe they're anonymous. Maybe it's a bot you're communicating with and is communicating back to you. But so often people are cruel online in a way that they would never in a million years be in person. And we lose all of the aspects of human communication online that we have in person, even with something like Zoom, even when you're looking at each other, you're still looking at one another through the lens of a two-dimensional screen. And you're losing that sense of being in a room with another human being. I just find that it's all too easy for Mm -hmm. all of us to descend into a kind of human interaction online that we would never engage in in real life. Yeah, so true. In point 72, you write about missing out and something that was just a thought we may have had pre-internet is now such a confirmed phenomena. Yes, we really are missing out. We can see the in real time uploads. This has often been linked to 
mental health because obviously it triggers those fundamental human needs to belong, to feel safe, to feel we're a part of something. What are your thoughts on fear of missing out, missing out in the internet? I'm going to go to teenagers first because I think it's just, it has to be the hardest for a teenager because remember when you were in high school and like Monday morning would come around and you'd find out like, oh my God, there was a party, like a big keg party in the beach or whatever. And everyone went and everyone is talking about it. However, you're not seeing pictures. You're not seeing videos. You're not hearing about it in real time. I mean, teenagers now witness things going on while they're happening that they are not included on. And there are all kinds of sadistic ways in which you can manipulate technology to Mm. really let people know, oh, we're here. You're not. We're pretending that you don't know that we're here and you're not, but you know, and I know, and we know, and they know. It's just a terrible feeling. And when you're a teenager, you always feel like you're the only one, you're left out, you weren't invited, you found out late. That's just Mm -hmm. a natural default teenager setting. And the truth is, all of us, even people who had really fun teenage years, no matter what, part of us always has that mode. And the internet really aids and abets all the bad feelings that come along with that. I find, you know, among peers in their 40s, in their 50s, you hear people saying over and over, like, oh my God, I feel like I'm in junior high, but I feel like I'm a teenager, but this is making me feel like I did in high school. And what is the this? This is something that's happening online because there's a lot of stuff that happens online that really (laughs) brings out like the sort of very worst side of adolescence in all of us. What do you think the remedy is for that? Is it, I guess we are kind of seeing it in this like mass migration away from social media in general, or do you think we all need to just toughen up and get a greater sense of self-acceptance because it is really painful and I'm in the early thirties and Yeah, sometimes I'm like, gosh, how am I spiraling back to my 18-year-old days? But it's really sometimes difficult not to. I don't know that toughening up is is the right answer because I you know, it's good to be vulnerable in in a lot of ways in one's life generally um, and open. But I think that it's perspective. Mm. I think that it's remembering the people I know in my real life are the people who are in my life, who know me, who love me, who accept me. They're the ones that count. And the people on the internet don't know me most of the time. And even if they're connected to me through, you know, six connections on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever it might be, they don't really matter to me. Um, And so it's sort of trying to remember what a lot of what happens online isn't really real. Um, And then also, while it can feel like this is the whole world who is making fun of this stupid thing I just said, or this way in which someone I know turned me into a meme somehow. It's not the whole world, you know, it's probably just your little silo and there's real life out there. You know, I think especially for young people, it is maintaining that perspective. And, Mm. and sometimes that means creating your own limits, not just on how you use the internet, but how much you use the internet, because it's easy to sink in. Yeah. Absolutely. In your point 32, you write about the idea of being the only one. And I found this chapter really interesting because it led me to reflect on how feeling special is actually 
sometimes really important for our sense of self and it can provide an element of safety in relationships. Like, oh, I'm the only one that bakes that bread and all my friends like it, whatever. Because it links back into that tribal safety of feeling like we've got a quality that no one else has. But obviously, as you write, the internet has taken that sense of being the only one away. What are your thoughts on this? So one of the ways in which the internet makes you not feel like you're the only one, and it's really great, is let's say you have a rare genetic disorder, or you have a child mm. with a rare genetic disorder, or you are dealing with a partner who is suffering from a long-term illness, and you're trying to figure out, like, navigate the healthcare system, or navigate how do I do a living will, or whatever it might be, the internet is there, and there are lots of people on there who are probably going through the exact same thing, and being able to easily find those people, that's just something before the internet, you just couldn't do. I mean, there's just, there was no way. If you were a parent who had a child who was on the low-functioning end of the autism spectrum, and you were trying to reach out to other people who had, let's say, you know, sons who were going through adolescence, but didn't have speech and didn't have communication capabilities. You're just trying to either like get advice or just talk to someone about it. You couldn't do that before the internet, not easily. It's really hard to find, you know, people who are having very specific experiences, or if you're in a community that doesn't accept who you are to be able to reach out and find other people who understand you, all of that is to the good. But then again, it could also be really terrible because the internet can also validate ideas, thoughts, behaviors that are not necessarily healthy. Um, we know that a lot of the ways in which young people become political extremists is online because you find people that validate maybe just a fleeting thought, they validate it and it encourages it. And you know, before you know it, especially if you're within a particular silo and you're sort of working in this vacuum, everyone is, is validating a point of view. It's very easy to kind of move into that point of view. And that can be political extremism. It could be anorexia or bulimia or cutting or some other behavior where you find people who are engaging in it and maybe encouraging it, sometimes inadvertently and sometimes deliberately. And now you're not the only one and that feels good, but what you're doing is maybe not in your best interest. And then there are just lighter examples of this, like the baking thing. Like sometimes you're like, you know what? Like, I am so cool because I have this amazing thimble collection that my grandmother gave me. And I like, it's just so old school and fun. And even though I don't sew, like, it's just really cool to have all these thimbles and you like post a picture of it or whatever. And you go online and, and there are dozens of people who have 20 times more thimbles than you do. And they're so much better. And they're from both their grandmothers on both sides. Of, you know, it's just like, there's always someone else who has done it first, done it better, done it more, photographed it better. And, you know, you're just not that interesting <laughs> when you come down to it compared with everyone else. Is it slightly narcissistic to think that you need to be the only one? Is that a behavior that feeds into this idea of self-esteem that we know is actually troublesome for people? because it can go up and down. I mean, the internet turns us all into narcissists and I'm guilty of it <laughs> as anyone else. Like, you know, it's crazy to think that everyone is going to be interested in all these photographs of your children. And yet they are, you know, and you go into Twitter sometimes and people I know, people I love, people I respect, I see them tweeting about every little aspect of their day. And I'm like, it's crazy that you think I care. And yet I'm really tempted sometimes to be like, I just ate a lion bar and then another lion bar and a Twix bar just tweet it out. And it's like, why? Why should anyone care? Like, I don't really even care that much about that, those candy bars. So it, it just brings it up in all of us. 
I just, I just, it makes me laugh so much at the absurdity of human behavior. Like this is comedy gold for me about just the oddness that we've all sunk into. And I'm so grateful to be alerted to the eccentric behaviors that we've collectively fallen into for whatever reason. Because for me, who is very integrated into mindfulness, you know, I, I often like say in a lot of talks is, you know, the internet took away mindfulness because, you know, we were forced to think of nothing. And now it's very bizarre how these businesses have been built on paying to bring back stillness. Yes, yes. I think it's so funny when, you know, you have schools, for example, um, many of them here allow kids to be on their phones slash portable internets all the time and encourage it and have all their classes online, blah, 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 blah. And then they offer mindfulness and meditation and yoga. Um, and they talk about why these kids need it. And they're so anxious. And I'm like, well, did you ever think that maybe there is a relationship between these two things? Our bodies have and our minds have not yet caught up with how do you deal even like one day of being online in one day of being online you can find out all these things like so for example online today i found out about two people i know who have covid i've seen a million headlines with upsetting news happening and that's not even talking about like all of the texts that i've gotten and notifications i haven't even been on social media yet today and i have felt all these feelings and that is a lot to go through not just the, all the information, right? We're, we're constantly talking about like information overload. We have emotional overload. Mm. We're just our hearts and minds and feelings are just being tugged in a million different directions. And at the end of the day, it's no surprise that it's really hard to just relax and kind of let go of everything you've been through that day. It's like we've cycled through, you know, what would have previously been three or four weeks of emotional events in the space of one day. I, I, and I think that happens every day. And I don't think that our minds and our bodies have caught up with like, how are we supposed to deal with all that? It's just a lot of stuff in one 24 hour period. I think it's so easy for people to assume that they are broken because they're feeling overwhelmed without actually recognizing that we are in a really difficult system. And the responsibility of mental health it widens it away from just individual responsibility by understanding the water that we're swimming in. And without regularly, I think, checking in, and this is why I think this book is so good for anyone who's feeling a bit stressed out, because I think it actually reassures you that don't worry, you're not the only one going a bit crazy. We all are. Yes, <laughs> we've all lost aspects of what were spaces in our lives that, that existed mm -hmm. before the internet and just giving people the sense of choice. First of all, reminding them what it used to be like. So, okay, oh, you know, that actually used to be an option. But then mm -hmm. also reminding people it still is an option. Just take, for example, you used to go on vacation and you didn't have a phone slash portable internet. So you just went and there was not a choice and everyone was fine. You came back it was fine. Your dog was fine. Your friend's situation was fine. School was fine. Work was fine. Your family was fine. You just had gone and you were out of touch for a week and it was okay. Now we could all do that. You could leave your phone at home. Do any of us do it? It's really scary. I haven't done it, but you could, you could mm. do it. Um, and it's sort of to remind us like there is that choice that you can make. So one of the points, point 95, you write about how the internet took away a parent's undivided attention. 
How have you navigated, obviously, you mentioned you've got teenagers. How have you navigated technology and also like giving the time and attention children need? Well, one thing I think about is that strollers now have a place where you put your device, like they have like a phone holder, you know, um, so that you could have your phone right in front of you while you're pushing your child in the stroller. And when my kids were in the stroller, I just sort of thought like either they're just kind of looking around, but also a lot of the time while they were looking ahead and probably not understanding really much of what I was saying, I would just talk to them anyway. I just blah, 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 talk about what they were seeing. Just talk aloud. I didn't talk on the phone to someone else. I was talking to them. I actually think that kind of speech is important. And there are some studies that back up the fact that it is really important to talk to your child. And now I just think, wow, like, but the parent is going to have a headset in and maybe listening to an audiobook or a podcast or whatever else. It's not all awful, but they're somewhere else. And they're not actually going to hear what their baby is cooing or this or that in the stroller. And they're not talking to the baby in the stroller. Um, and maybe they're scrolling through Instagram while they're pushing them. And so they're not noticing like, oh, a bird in the tree that they're going to mm-hmm. point out to the baby. It's just a really different kind of interaction. And I think, frankly, kind of impoverished interaction. And I understand like it's hard. I don't want to sound super judgmental because we're all really habituated to these things. But I, you know, one of the things that I think about too, is that thinking about that choice aspect, it's, it's the parent's choice as to what age to give the child a device and to set down limits and to teach their child about the negative things that the internet brings as well as the positive. Um, so that hopefully when the child is then not under your jurisdiction, they'll be able mm. to make those decisions in a wiser way on their own. Thank you so much for your time. This has been excellent. And to anyone who is feeling slightly fatigued by the world of internet, um, I massively recommend this book. Where is the best place to find you, Pamela, and for people to follow your work? Because obviously you, you're constantly writing, so people can have lots of you in lots of different ways. Uh, well, um, there's social media, alas, I'm on it. So I can be found on Twitter and Instagram um, and very slightly on Facebook. And my editing work and occasional writing is in the New York Times. And then the books are obviously in bookstores um, or online. So those are the major places. And we will put all of those in the show notes. And there's so many points that we didn't cover, which I will leave the readers to find out and reminisce of those. Um, But for now, thank you so much. A total pleasure. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 